Welcome back to another episode of Rocky Mountain Surgery. I'm Allie. And this week, we'll be talking about how advanced practice providers are incorporated into our residency and our education and our work environment. So hold on, Allie. As we usually do, we talk about what kind of fun things we did in the last few weeks, and you had a particular interesting trip recently. Want to tell us? Tell us about that. I went to Ireland and it was awesome. I went for eight days and I did it through a Groupon vacation. So there were a lot of people who wanted some follow-up from me to know if that was something that was actually worth doing or if basically you'd be like stranded on your own in another country. And it was totally fine and it was cheap. Um, so we did like all of the Ireland things. We went to three castles. I kissed the Blarney Stone. We went to the Cliffs of Moher, which was beautiful. Um, we went to Galway. We did all of the traditional Irish things, including having a few Guinnesses. What about you, Jason? Have you done anything fun recently? Nothing nearly as notable. Just the standard enjoying the Colorado winter. Uh, we actually have just been doing the typical biking and running over the weekend kind of activities and enjoying some local brews, but nothing to speak of that's that exciting. We should also say congratulations to all the people who matched recently. Match day was last weekend. We're welcoming a great class, and it seems like a lot of people online and on social media were happy with where they matched, so congratulations to everybody. Yeah, congrats to everyone. That's an exciting uh, moment in your life that you'll probably never forget, and uh, there's some interesting days awaiting you once you start a surgical residency. All right, so like you said, Allie, today we're going to be talking about advanced practice providers. So what is what is an advanced practice provider for our pre-med and early medical students? I think that one of the women who we talked to in this episode will explain this, but basically um, physician assistants or nurse practitioners that have basically a master's in either nurse practitioner or physician assistant studies, and they work... Honestly, their licensing is a little bit different from state to state, and I don't know enough about it to speak about it in detail. But basically, they work under the license of a physician most times in most states, and they help expand basically the capacity of teams or doctors um, in the community or in academic centers. They are providers themselves. I mean, some advanced practice providers, they they work honestly in every different clinical setting. And so where we interact with advanced practice providers, NPs or PAs, is in our ICUs. Oftentimes they are a part of the individual surgical teams. And then sometimes they're also like the outpatient counterparts to our surgical teams as well. For example, our multidisciplinary clinics here at the University of Colorado are all organized by advanced practice providers. And there's actually an advanced practice provider who deals with the pancreatic multidisciplinary clinic, a different one for the colorectal clinic, a different one for the esophageal and gastric clinic, a different one for the thoracic clinic, and a different one for the melanoma clinic. So a wide variety of roles, including like people who work in the emergency department or people who do primary care or people who assist in the operating room. So the job is varied, just like being a doctor. Thinking back, I don't recall even considering or being aware of what either a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner. I didn't I wasn't aware that those were career options. And I think they're becoming they're they're more not necessarily advertised, but when students are thinking about healthcare careers, they're considering more earnestly than maybe you or I did. I don't know, Allie, what do you think? Was that something you had considered? Um 
Well... Or were we even aware of? I was definitely aware of it. You know, I think that NPs and PAs, having actually worked with many, can have varying degrees of autonomy, including, like, can be completely autonomous. But I wanted all of the autonomy, I think. So it was not something ultimately that I ended up choosing, but I definitely considered it. And talking with my advisors in college, um, we discussed it as a possibility. The track to becoming an advanced practice provider looks different depending upon whether you become a PA or a nurse practitioner. For example, um, most nurse practitioners have done several years of clinical practice within nursing and have a bachelor's of science within nursing. So they come to grad school with like a wide variety of clinical experience in different areas. And then they get a master's on top of that, which is a year or two years. I think it's one year, but I'm not positive. And then for PA school, the traditional route is to get a bachelor's in something. And I I know a lot of PAs who have done something else and then gone back and become PAs. So that you get a bachelor's in something, and then you have to have a really large amount of clinical experience before you even apply. And so you have to have something like a thousand documented clinical hours before you even apply, signed off on by somebody. And then I think you take the normal GME for both of those or for both of those degrees, and then apply to school the same way you would for medical school. And like I said, I think that nurse practitioner school is either between one or two years, and then PA school is three years. And then generally speaking, if you're going to do a residency out of PA school, I do have a friend who I grew up with who's a PA, and she does um, interventional cardiology. And she did a one-year hospitalist residency or fellowship. I can't remember what she called it after she graduated from PA school. So the training is definitely shorter than what we're doing. That would be, I would say, a good selling point for it. Yeah. And thinking about, and it's becoming a common question on the interview trail of how residents interact with these uh, advanced practice providers, which is a, a fair question to ask. And how it works at our institution, and I think this is probably how it works at most, is their team-based advanced practice providers, either a nurse practitioner or PA. So what that means is like our surgical oncology team has an APP or a couple. The thoracic team has an APP or two. And then the ICUs oftentimes have multiple APPs that intermix with the residents on the team at the time, which I think is a huge benefit because they really do provide that continuity of care between residents transitioning from one team to another. The uh, APP on the team is able to then communicate from the first team that was on to the next team what the plans that were in place and make sure that there's no things that fall through the gaps. I think in the ICU, they're incredibly helpful because, I mean, they've been doing nothing but intensive care as their career. So especially early on, they're huge resources to rely on, especially when it's your first or second ICU experience as a resident, either in your first or second or third year. I don't know, Ali, what are your thoughts? What has been your experience in working with APPs? I think that the APPs that we work with are wonderful and they can teach you a lot, especially at the beginning of your rotation because they understand everybody's preferences, all of the surgeon's preferences, the team preferences, and how things generally go on a day-to-day basis. Um, and they know, you know, workarounds for things that you may uh, have difficulty with or come into during your rotation. They also, I think, are like 
cheerleader and the backbone of the team sometimes. The one thing that I would caution people about is kind of like an us versus them mentality. I think that since the advent of the 80 hour work week, there's been a big focus on education over just pure service. And so that's when a lot of specifically academic places started hiring APPs to be able to extend the coverage um, so residents could get more educational opportunities. So I think that you have to appreciate that about their presence on the team and not necessarily take advantage of them, even though they are the people who know everybody's preferences. It doesn't mean that they need to do every discharge summary. So especially interns working with APPs, I would say, think of them, think of yourself, not as someone greater than, but as equal to, and as part of the same team. And I think that if you come into working with APPs um, from that mindset, then you all will have success and be happy. Yeah, I I agree entirely with those statements. My experience has always been that first off, they usually are hugely helpful when you're trying to get your feet under you on a new service or a new team. And they are, like like I said, especially in the ICUs, a lot of times they're the ones who can help you master those procedural techniques that you're beginning to develop uh, because they've been doing them for quite a bit longer and that's really what they've dedicated their careers to. Yeah, I just think that honestly the most important thing is the mentality that you have going into working with them. That being said... We would love to introduce you guys to both Emily and Kim, who are two NPs who work in our Denver Health Surgical Trauma ICU. They have both been at Denver Health for the past like year and a half to two years. I think they came at about the same time. They both came from clinical nursing backgrounds, which we'll let them tell you guys about, um, and then have now found their careers in surgical critical care. They are wonderful resources and we would like you guys to listen to what they have to say. All right, welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. We have two of our awesome surgical ICU APPs here with us. That's advanced practice providers. Uh, Allie and I have both enjoyed working with them uh, during our rotations in the SICU, and they've taught us an incredible amount. Uh, but they're here today to talk to us about the experience as an APP in working with residents at a county hospital or teaching hospital. Uh, why don't you two both introduce yourselves? My name is Emily Perkins-Pride. I'm one of the nurse practitioners in the surgical ICU. I'm Kim Harden. I'm also another nurse practitioner in the SICU. All right, guys, to start off, why don't you tell us what your journey was through school into the practice of surgical MPs? You're both nurse practitioners. Uh, kind of what that journey was and how you ended up here at Denver Health. Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> um, so I have been a nurse and have been in the ICU in some capacity since 2006. Um, graduated nursing school in 2006. Go like, Heels! Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sorry, Kim and I went to college together. <laughs> did you guys really? Yeah. yeah we did. Um, took my first um, nursing job in a medical ICU. Um, from there, had varied experiences in different ICUs, including travel nursing. After about four years, I decided to go back to school as a nurse practitioner. It kind of always been um, something in the back of my mind that I thought I would eventually do. Um, and after four years, I felt like I had adequate experience that I was ready for the next step. 
Um, so I went back to grad school, uh, went to Duke University that time around. Boo. Not as good. Um, <laughs> and, uh, got my MP degree in 2012. Uh, from there, I took my first MP job actually at Duke in their neurocritical care unit. I chose that just because it was a really good unit for APPs to start in. Uh, you had a lot of autonomy there. There was really high level of expectation for how you should function in the unit and uh, the resource that you should be for the residents that rotated in and out. So it was just a really great opportunity for me to get a solid base of training um, as a new nurse practitioner. After that, just life and careers uh, moved my husband and I to Miami, where I worked at the University of Miami for a couple of years in their neurocritical care units. Um, that was kind of a, a stepping stone for us. It wasn't somewhere we wanted to be forever. So um, ultimately, we both got job opportunities out here and uh, are really happy to be here. That's kind of what landed me in the SICU here. I had two neurocritical care jobs prior to this, but I wasn't really tied or committed to neurocritical care. Like I said, I've always done critical care and I very much enjoy that, but I was I was excited and I think ready for a change to do something a little bit different, try a different specialty and, and uh, just learn something new. Emily? <laughs> so I've been a nurse since 2009 and like Kim, I started in a medical ICU, which can be really overwhelming and deal with some of the sickest patients you will ever see. I started at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, and I worked there for three years. And then I decided to transition to a surgical trauma ICU at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles when I moved there after three years. And I loved it. I loved the surgery aspect. We didn't get a whole lot of trauma because it's a level two. Mm -hmm. And then I also went back to school and got my nurse practitioners in L.A., and worked as well as went back to school at the same time and then transitioned to Denver and worked at the U and ICU float. And then this is my first job as a surgical ICU nurse practitioner. Very exciting. Well, we love having you guys around. I guess one of the questions that I think some of our listeners may have, especially if they're coming from maybe a smaller medical school or potentially a medical school that doesn't have a lot of interaction with APPs. Like I think when I was a medical student, I really did not work with APPs, to be honest. So what is the relationship that you guys have with residents? How would you explain your role, you know, within teaching the residents and within the residency in general? I think it's nice to be able to have a consistency in a sense that we're not rotating to different areas and doing surgery and burn and cardiothoracic, we're just in the surgical trauma ICU, so we get an expertise in that. But you guys are teaching us just as much as we're hopefully teaching you. Yeah, I think uh, one way I think that I like to think of it is obviously we are not surgery residents. We don't have the surgical knowledge that you guys have, but we do specialize in critical care. And I think that those two things can complement um, each other, especially for new residents who maybe have never been in the ICU. You know, they have the surgery knowledge to to understand what's going on with the patients, but not a lot of the experience with critical care, mm -hmm. with the medications we use, with the ventilators, um, with the different procedures we do. So that's kind of, I think, where Emily and I do feel comfortable and it's something that we do feel knowledgeable in. And I think those two things complement each other well. Like Emily said, we can learn from each other. Uh, one thing that kind of struck up the idea of having this conversation with you guys is a common question we get during interview season is, are there a lot of APPs at your institution? What's the relationship with 
And so if a resident was to ask you guys that, you know, what would you tell them? And more so, like, what are the benefits of working with APPs as a resident? Um, so, I mean, it kind of just is a lead in from the previous question. But I think that coming into a unit that functions like a well-oiled machine because we're there all the time um, has obvious benefits. There's a resource there, like we're go-to resource. We know the ins and outs of the unit. We know exactly what each attending likes and how they like it generally. How they and like procedures. There's a lot of, I think, hoops that maybe previously residents had to jump through that now is, is just a matter of looking over your shoulder and asking a question to get the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So at our institution, uh, this is a teaching hospital, and both of you have worked in several teaching hospitals. Is that something you desired? Is it just something that kind of worked out with your career path? What is it about the teaching hospitals uh, that attracted you? I've always loved working in teaching hospitals. I love working re- with residents, with the attendings. I feel like you're always on the cutting out of edge of medicine, and you're constantly learning something new. You're never feeling as though you're in a stagnant position. Yeah, I agree. Um, I've generally sought out working in teaching hospitals as well. Um, I've had some experience in in non-teaching facilities just for short stints as a travel nurse and just comparing them. I think that the focus on um, education or just even dissemination of information that's out there is it's a much bigger priority in teaching institutions in general. And and, and that's probably not the case for every single hospital out there. But speaking generally, um, I think that there is a bigger focus on learning. and in general, just the acuity of patients as well is one thing that mm-hmm. attracts me to teaching hospitals. Generally, they're larger uh, facilities. Often they are the level one trauma centers. And um, the patients that you get provide more learning opportunities, perhaps, than some patients you might encounter in smaller county hospitals. Mm-hmm. Let me ask a slightly more controversial question then. Do you guys think that by working at a teaching hospital with multiple other learners at different phases throughout their career from, you know, senior residents and fellows to medical students, do you think that you trade some of your autonomy that you would have at a place that did not have all of those learners? I mean, right now I'm speaking from someone who's only ever worked in teaching (laughs) hospitals, so I don't really have a lot of experience from working outside of them. And this is my first job as a nurse practitioner. Um, But I will say that I don't feel as though as of yet that I've lost my autonomy in any kind of way. If anything, I feel like I'm constantly learning from anybody that's coming into the ICU, or I feel like I'm also getting the opportunity to teach them, which is great, but I don't feel like there's a loss of autonomy. Yeah, I agree. I think regardless of whether you're in a teaching hospital or uh, you know a non-teaching hospital, I think that often for mid-level providers, for advanced practice providers, um, Autonomy comes with just trust of the people you work with. So the longer you're there, the more they learn that they can trust your judgment, the more comfortable they are with you, the more you are get comfortable in the place that you work. I think that your autonomy generally increases the longer you're working anywhere. So you guys see a ton of residents come through the ICU and each one kind of brings their own pluses and minuses. What are some common mistakes you see residents uh, make when they're going through the ICU that we all tend to repeat at least early on or you know, they're just kind of common themes. So that's a hard one to answer. But I think um, one of the common things that I see often is generally early on in a residence rotation, um, often overnight when there are not a lot of resources around, um, various things happen with patients in the ICU. It's not uncommon for a patient to decline overnight when you're the only one in the unit. And I think one of the biggest pitfalls I've seen for our residents is just uh, forgetting to communicate things that happen overnight 
uh, forgetting to run things up the chain, uh, which often backfires for them just because they would have been managed differently had they been run up the chain. I think the other common theme that I see amongst the residents is the lack of probably ventilator knowledge. Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to procedures and, you know, surgeries and just knowledge in general, when it comes to presenting, you guys are always great, but it's the vents that really kind of become overwhelming for everybody. Yeah, I remember uh, when I came through the ICU here, which this was my first ICU rotation, that that was by far the uh, weakest link in my medical knowledge was uh, the ventilator. So earlier you can start teaching yourself about the ventilator uh, and how lung physiology works, uh, the better off you'll be. One question to follow up on kind of the what could residents do better question. Um, I think that depending upon where you are and what the team makeup is of what specific service you're on as a resident there and the personalities, probably the most important thing, there can be tension between APPs and residents on teams. Have you guys felt that? And like what types of attitudes or behaviors do you think make that better or worse? I don't know that I have felt a lot of that. I think in general, most residents uh, come into the SICU wanting to learn and generally being humble. Um, I think one thing that probably makes it worse is the resident who comes in and thinks that they know everything they need to know from the get-go. Um, doesn't or you know, And can make decisions single-handedly without the help of anybody else. I think that that's the takeaway that you need to have is just be humble when you come into the ICU and realize that this is a cohesive effort. I, I do. I think it's a, it's definitely a, a teamwork experience in the unit. Um, and, you know, even more so when you have APPs in the mix. In the ICU, it works out pretty well, mainly because it's pretty obvious how work gets distributed. Everyone kind of picks up a couple patients and we follow them along. And after a while, you've got several patients you've been following for a while and it becomes a little bit easier. I think some of the controversies, Allie, you're referring to can happen on the floor where distribution works a little more nebulous. And there's also an interest to be in the operating room, both for the APPs and the residents of all levels. And so it's all just a matter of, like you guys are talking about, trying to find the best team dynamic uh, to where the work gets done in an efficient manner, but everyone's desires from an education standpoint and work fulfillment standpoint are, are uh, yeah, acknowledged. Uh, but yeah, for our experience, my experience, nice to hear that that was never really an issue. And part of it is personalities too. I think from the leadership, from our attendings, it's clear what the expectations are from the very beginning. And then the residents, there's always been kind of an understanding of what the roles are too. So that uh, has an advantage as well. And I'm not just saying that because you guys are here, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I 100% agree. At the ICU here, and I already kind of mentioned this, the role of the APP is, like I said, very similar to the resident that we all kind of just distribute patients and you guys round on your patients like we ours and you guys present them like we ours. And there's also a back and forth, you know, going back to that team dynamic where everyone can support each other. With that said, you know, how does that compare, especially Kim, you've worked at other or teaching hospitals, how does it compare to the setup over there? And what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of the setup of the role of the APP? Um, yeah, so I think, you know, the advantages of, I mean, one of the most obvious, obvious ones is just having more people around to split up the patient load. Um, it allows you more time to focus on the patients you do have to be more thorough in your care of those patients and then just to have 
time to learn more, to read more about your patients. It's similar to the other hospitals I've worked in um, for the most part. Uh, I do think that, I guess in other hospitals I've worked in, it was more of a like one shift there was an APP and the next shift there was a resident or a fellow. Um, so we weren't necessarily working together at the same time. And I, I think that has a lot of benefits just again, because there we're the, you know, a, we have some continuity in the ICU. We have, um, a lot to offer just in the form of, you know, simple, simple questions that you, you want asked. Or if, for example, a, you know, fellow attending, no one's around, you need to do a procedure on your patient. You know, oftentimes we can help walk you through that because we've been through that several times. Um, I don't know, Emily, what do you have to add? One of the disadvantages I would probably say is the fact that I know you guys are all going to roll your eyes at me when I say this, (laughs) is we work three days a week, so we work 12-hour shifts, so it's not always a continuity of care, and you guys are the ones that are really there constantly, you know, working 30-hour calls Mm -hmm. or working, you know, 12-hour days, and you're there every single day, so you know all the patients individually and what happens on rounds each day, which we're not always as familiar with, and things Mm -hmm. can kind of get lost in translation during sign-out as well, so... No, that's true. While there's always one of us there every day, it's not necessarily the same person. All of us there every day, like like you guys. But overall, I think that the system works well. I think that it's a nice setup. So it's not just medical students who listen to this podcast. There are some pre-medical students out there as well who are thinking about the best career path for them. So what is what would you guys say to someone who's considering the medical field but thinking about either medical school versus uh, the nurse practitioner pathway or a PA pathway? Uh, what are some of the difference? In other words, take a second to plug the role of the MP and what you enjoy about your job. And if someone's considering those roles, why maybe someone should consider an NP career versus going through the medical school route? I think there are a couple obvious differences. One is simply time spent in hospital. Um, you and know, salary. I think, yeah, <laughs> I, you know, not to, you know, promote one over the other, but there are a f- few lifestyle differences, I think, just in general with, you know, working 40 hours a week versus working significantly more than that. Um, so there's a little bit more freedom. Uh, in, in our case, we work three 12 hour shifts a week that, uh, provides a lot of flexibility in your scheduling. Uh, you can schedule around appointments around everyday needs. You can also schedule around vacations, um, and take more of those. If you were going to PA school, generally those people have completed a bachelor's degree. And then most of my friends that went to PA school did either some type of clinical job for a year or did a lot of clinical volunteering. Like I think that most of the schools had to have a thousand volunteer hours or clinical hours, I should say, um, before they applied. So the, the NP and PA routes are, you know, slightly different because you guys both had years of experience as working nurses mm-hmm. before going back and getting your master's degree. Um, and another difference to add is simply, I think there's more flexibility within the medical profession, even as, as far as what you want to do with going either PA or NP route, but um, versus going to medical school. Um, like in my case, I worked in multiple different types of ICUs as a nurse, uh, you know, cardiothoracic, medical, surgical, you name it, I did it. And then as an MP, I've done neurocritical care, um, felt like I got really comfortable with that and decided to try something new. Uh, you don't have quite that much flexibility once you, once you pick a, especially and go into your residency. Yeah. I think as an APP, you kind of get into a specialty and then you'll stay into that specialty and you kind of get categorized into that. And you don't necessarily have the ability to get out of that once you're sort of into that 
narrow area like critical care like we are. Um, as long as you love that area, then do it. <laughs> um, versus if you were going to become a physician and go to medical school and do general surgery, you have the ability to be more versatile and do things like operate. Do you guys ever wish you had gone to medical school being around all of these residents or no? No, <laughs> not really. <laughs> <laughs> they know how much debt we're in. <laughs> Pretty easy answer. Well, guys, I really appreciate your time. Uh, this has been really interesting, as it always is. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are going to uh, enjoy this discussion and learn a little bit about uh, how the IC works with APPs involved. So thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to another episode of Rocky Mountain Surgery. This week, we have the pleasure of having Zach Asher, who is one of our surgical trauma ICU PAs um, during this APP episode. Zach went to PA school at a terrible, terrible school in North Carolina called Duke. Go Kansas, by the way. And I think your whole career has been in critical care, hasn't it, Zach? All right. So will you tell us a little bit about your path into becoming a PA? You know, Jason and I have talked um, with little knowledge, I will say, about what it takes to go to PA school. I understand that there are some clinical requirements before you even apply and that school is generally three years and you can do fellowships afterwards. Will you tell us a little bit about your path? Sure. So my interest in medicine actually started when I was really young and my uncle took me into the operating room. Um, probably before the Joint Commission had standards and there were rules. <laughs> so I was six or seven, and my uncle was a neurosurgeon in Chicago, and there was a heart transplant going on a few doors down. And so I was really interested in medicine my whole life. And then I worked at a camp for kids with cancer outside of St. Louis, and so I was always rather interested um, in medicine and debated different careers uh, including child health psychology and things like that. In college, I wasn't uh, the greatest academian, and so my grades were mediocre at best, and I actually took uh, an EMT course my second semester of senior year and moved up to Vail, Colorado, and that was pretty much my second experience with physician assistants. My first was when I was incredibly sick with mono in college. Huh. That was my first experience with a physician assistant who took really good care of me. Um, and then during my time in Vail, um, working as a certified nursing assistant and in the operating room and in the ER, I really saw what physician assistants could do and worked with uh, physician assistants, PAs, in the operating room who were essentially first assist, there were PAs who were part of the trauma team. And so that really opened up my eyes to a new, a new field and a new career. And so eventually I applied to PA school and was accepted at Duke, the better of the <laughs> three schools in the Raleigh-Durham Triangle. But to get into school, most uh most programs require at least a thousand hours of patient contact experience, and that's a little bit loose in terms of what actually counts. Working in a lab as a lab technician doesn't count, but if you do phlebotomy, that counts. So you actually have to interact with people in order for it to be patient contact experience. Mm -hmm. 
And then there are a lot of similar prerequisites to medical school, including anatomy and physiology, biology, chemistry, some of those. You don't have to take the MCAT, but the GRE is required for most institutions. So what, PA school is three years? Two years, most programs. Okay. So what are the two years like? Is it one year of preclinical classes and one year of clinicals? Pretty much. Um, So there are some programs that are three years. Some programs are 28 months. The majority of the programs that I'm aware of are two years. The first year is quite comparable to the first two years of medical school. So a lot of anatomy and didactic Mm -hmm. learning, mostly in the classroom with some physical exams, small groups, going to the VA or whatnot and getting patient experience in clinical and not clinical. Um, And then the second year is clinical rotations. Um, And so we do OBGYN, we do internal medicine, family medicine, surgery, emergency medicine. So the majority of the rotations that medical students do as well. And then most programs have an affiliated master's degree. So there's an evidence-based medicine Mm. project or uh, coursework associated with that too. So did you know the whole time throughout your training, like coming into it with some ER experience and some EMT experience that you wanted to do critical care or trauma? I knew I either wanted to do emergency medicine or critical care. I actually knew that I wanted to do a fellowship before I was accepted into PA school. So it was nice that I was able to reach out to some of the programs that I was interested in for the fellowship and ask them what sort of elective rotations would make me a stronger candidate. Mm -hmm. So I went to the cardiothoracic ICU at Duke to get some critical care experience, and then I did an extra month in emergency medicine that wasn't affiliated with the major academic centers. And so I was the only learner mm. in my second emergency medicine rotation. And so I was able to do just about everything. The reason why I ask you all these questions is because I think that whether it be PA school or NP school, the understanding of what that actually entails and how you guys are prepared versus people who go to medical school, like I don't think we generally know. And mm-hmm. so I think it's good for people who are becoming residents in either surgery, whatever they end up doing, to understand what you guys have gone through to be in your positions. Because physicians, assistants, and nurse practitioners, I think, as you said, act in so many different capacities. And so starting to work with people in that setting when you're a resident, like you want to know who's on your team. So I think this better explains to them how you guys are trained. Absolutely. So you came here after working for several years at John Hopkins and have been here since for several years, were you always interested in working at academic hospitals or teaching hospitals or interacting with residents as part of the teaching process? Was that something that you had your sights set on early on as well? Before PA school, I didn't really know the difference or what was associated with either. I'd only been in a private practice hospital in Vail, so I didn't really know. And then as I did my rotations, with residents at Duke and subsequently my fellowship at Johns Hopkins, I saw the incredibly high level of providers. I saw great give and take of knowledge between both professions. 
And I also really enjoyed evaluating research and the newest literature and whether or not do you base your practice on the meta-analysis, do you base it on the most recent randomized controlled trial that came out. So between those things, it's always uh, drawn me to academic centers. And then when I decided to have a career in critical care, there are very few non-tertiary quaternary care facilities that do the high level of critical care that I really enjoy. And then our next question, how does the SICU team here utilize APPs at this center? Like what are some of the advantages and disadvantages with this type of setup? Because generally speaking, for those of you guys listening who don't work at the University of Colorado, the team is comprised of a attending of the week and then plus or minus critical care fellows and then usually one or two advanced practice providers. And I think everyone who works here currently is a PA. There are no NPs on the team. Is that right? Correct. We have an NP starting in July. Because the when we talk to people who work, the APPs who work at Denver Health, both of them are trained as nurse practitioners. But you guys act in the same capacity, generally right. speaking. Um, and then with the APPs who are here throughout the entire year, um, then there are residents who are both surgical and anesthesia residents who rotate in and out generally a month at a time. So it's a busy, bustling, and changing team. So going back to the question after that setup, what do you think some of the advantages and disadvantages with such a setup is? So the advantages, in my opinion, clearly is the continuity of care. So the residents change, the attendings change, the fellows change, but we don't. We work most days out of the week, not every day, but, and we have a great relationship amongst the physician assistants in the group. So we're able to communicate patient needs. And some of our patients have quite extensive stays and many complications or comorbidities or things that need to be worked on and optimized. So we're very much a continuity of care within the ICU. We also, because we're here all the time, we know the flow and we know what things can be done on the floor, what things have to be done in an intensive care unit, which patients frequently come to us because our bed managers, those who assign patient beds, sometimes are new, sometimes don't know. So we're able to say maybe this vascular patient would be better served in the CTICU or you know, this is a neurosurgeon operating on this patient's Head, maybe they would be better served in the neuro ICU. And we know the protocols. We know the rib fracture protocol and we know where things are. So it helps the process be very smooth. I think the disadvantage was slightly thrown in my face the first year that I was at Johns Hopkins. And I had a resident tell me to my face that he felt that my presence in the ICU detracted from the learning of the residents and the interns. Hmm. I then helped him do his first subclavian line in a patient that had already had a chest tube and worked him through that process. He then became a fellow and is now an attending and relied on us more. So I think it's easier for fellows and attendings to come straight to one of the advanced practice providers in the ICU. 
And so the residents can get bypassed or miss educational opportunities because of our presence. I think that that's because you guys are the basically the continuous presence in the ICU. They understand your skill set maybe more than a resident that they haven't worked with before or something like that. And they know us. Yeah. And so the majority of our all of our attendings, I have their cell phone number. They have my cell phone number so they can text us. The transplant attendings have my number and all of the APP's phone numbers. And so it's easier and sometimes faster to just talk to them. But that then inhibits or decreases the learning opportunities for the fellows and residents. And sometimes that's important if patients are acutely decompensating and you can't wait for three phone calls to be made. But sometimes it's probably detrimental. What I would say to that, that's unfortunate to hear, although I'm not that surprised. But we've said multiple times during this episode that the APPs and the ICUs are an immense resource that residents who, especially early on, but even really throughout the year, uh, but they're an immense resource and residents should take advantage of those. And part of it kind of symbolizes the idea that trust is an important part of the residency experience and that trust is not just something you're handed from day one. It's, it's earned. And part of that earning trust is demonstrating that you understand what you're capable of and what you're not capable of. And where you fit on that team. And so statements like that will identify that you don't quite understand what your limitations are or why someone might be going to somebody else instead of you for it. But if you can demonstrate early on that you're able to utilize other members of the team, whether they're your senior level residents, junior level residents, APPs, whichever, uh, that's another way for residents to improve their learning experience because then people will realize that it's more of a cohesive effort. And I'm sure that, I mean, feel free to weigh in, but I'm sure that's the experience. That was certainly my experience in the ICUs. And I think it has to be bidirectional. There are Mm -hmm. many times when I'm alone in this ICU overnight because our fellows are at home, our attendings are at home, which puts a huge weight on the residents or the advanced practice provider manning up to 24 patients Mm -hmm. on their own. But I will frequently call the surgical R3 who's in-house overnight and ask their opinion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you look at this ostomy? Can you look at this belly? Or, hey, this patient has a super difficult airway. If I paid you to this bed, I need you to come here now and not ask questions. And I think that by me asking them questions and me asking their help, they see that I understand my limitations and I understand when I need a second pair of eyes. It's not a sign of weakness. It's Mm -hmm. not a sign of a huge deficit, but it's having more people and more experience. I may know more about which presser may be better for this situation, but they're also the ones that have explored multiple abdomens and seen more ostomies than I have. And so respecting each other for what our strengths are is really important. And you're exactly right that we are part of a team trying to provide the best care for the patients. So on that note, what are some of the expectations you see set forth for residents when they're rotating through the ICUs? And and we did a whole episode on the ICU experience, but it's nice to hear it from a different perspective of how residents can be successful uh, when they're going through their ICU rotations or when they're just managing critically ill patients. Or if I could phrase it a different way, 
If I was coming in to the ICU during my first ICU rotation as a second year resident, and it's my first day, what are things that you want me to be asking and how do you want me to be interacting with you or the attending? Or when should I ask for help? Anything like that. I think you should ask for help whenever you think you should ask for help. And not to be glib, but our attendings are very approachable, which is one of the reasons why I love what I do and where I work. Um, there's a great relationship amongst the residents, I feel, and the advanced practice providers with the attendings and the faculty here. I think showing up ready to work and to be a great member of the team is really important. I understand that not everybody wants to do surgical critical care. There are people that are much happier doing colorectal surgery or breast surgery or whatever it is, but unfortunately, some of your patients may still end up in the ICU, and so having an idea of what we're doing and why we're doing it is important. Or um, at least being able to have a conversation about why we're doing things or what we're doing. There are occasionally disagreements on the plan of care, but being able to have some experience is important. And knowing what your strengths are is equally helpful. You know, we frequently debate feeding a patient. And we know that early nutrition is helpful for gut flora and for garnering strength. But as the ICU team, we don't know how tenuous the anastomosis was or how many adhesions you lysed in the expected post-operative ileus. So being able to have those conversations is important. But as a resident, you know, understanding that it's a challenging month. You're on Q4 call here for some of your shifts are up to 28 hours. But showing up and being excited about being a member of the team and showing some initiative and not that your schedule may say that sign-out's at four, but really it's kind of when the person you're leaving the ICU in their hands are in a good place because it really isn't fun when you get four admissions at once and the list isn't updated. And I know it's a chore and not the most fun task, but it also helps you become a better provider when you look through a patient's home meds and add them to the sign-out and you know their history. And you can see perhaps this patient isn't the most optimized on some meds or it just gives you a better idea of who you're going to be taking care of in two nights potentially. I think that's a great point. I'll reemphasize that this medicine has somewhat shifted towards more of a shift work setup, but patients and the job of medicine is not and will never be a shift work type job or career. And so there is kind of this uh, natural disagreement between work hours and what's reality. And so to that point, being very flexible in all of the ICUs, whether that's in the morning when you're trying to get sign out or at night when you're trying to sign out to somebody else, understanding that it's not always going to, uh, patients aren't always going to uh, work with you and the schedule that you uh, set up for them or for your team. Uh, and if you can kind of be flexible with that, it makes a whole lot, things a lot more a lot, go a lot more smoothly for everyone in general. 
Yeah. Uh, it's not uncommon that that happens. I think it's like the golden rule. Like you have to treat people how you want to be treated. And so you need to sign out to your colleagues the way you would want things signed out to you, meaning have things tied up, know your patients and care that the things that you think are going to happen will get done during whoever's next shift it is. And I'll probably say two things to that. One is not every advanced practice provider has done a fellowship, but I have. I did essentially Q3 30-hour call for a year. And so I understand the fatigue. I understand the burnout. I understand the wanting to go home and see family and whatnot. Um, But not every advanced practice provider has done that. And they may have done more sort of shift work or whatnot. And so... I've said this before, but having a mutual respect and a mutual understanding is really important. And the other thing is that I've dedicated my life to this. Um, And so I understand that this may not be what everybody wants to do, but having uh, a little bit of an understanding that this may not be your favorite rotation, um, but this is what I do with my life. And this is what the other advanced practice providers in this ICU have decided to do for their careers. And understanding that both ways is really important here. Well, I think I speak for Allie and or the both of us when I say we learned an immense amount from you. So we appreciate all your help and uh, we appreciate your time today as well for the podcast. Anything else you want to add that we didn't discuss or any other pointers that you feel like we should throw out there for our listeners? I think you guys having me on this podcast shows the strides that have come between resident and advanced practice providers. It is not always rosy and it's not always the most cohesive at times. Um, But I think the respect that we have for each other, I've always respected both of you immensely, um, shows a lot. And I think there have been struggles both here and at other institutions with fighting for cases or fighting about what work is whose and division of labor. Um, But I think it's really great. And it is the future. So we have to figure out how to make it work or it's current. It's not even the future. Just is what is happening and it's what we are going to do to provide the best care for our patients. And you asked about my interest in academic medicine much earlier But I think furthering that relationship between residents who will soon become attendings and showing what advanced practice providers can do is what encourages me to stay in academic medicine. I get to take care of incredibly complex patients. I also get to do research projects, but I also help to show future attending physicians that what advanced practice providers can be. Thanks, Zach. We appreciate having you on today. Thanks. Thank you.